have level-headed conversations on anything maritime. We hope to engage you with stories that bring out different perspectives. If you have a story to tell, reach out and we could tell you to the world together. Today we have with us Captain Richard Madden. He's a sailing master. He's been in command of container ships and has been sailing for almost 30 years. I'm going into this conversation to understand container ships and how they handle. What are the changes the industry has seen and how the industry is coping up with these changes? Welcome on board, Evan Keel, Captain Richard. Thank you, Abhijit. It's a pleasure to be here. Can you, can you talk us through your seagoing career? How have you reached where you are now? Well, uh, I like to build myself as a full-time merchant mariner and a uh, part-time maritime instructor and simulator operator. I went to one of the maritime colleges in the United States, uh, New York Maritime, and graduated in 1990. For most of the 90s, I worked for the uh, U.S. government on government vessels, uh, ranging from transporting dry cargo on one of their last uh, yard and stay rig ships to uh, underway replenishment of petroleum products and uh, dry cargo, and also was on an offshore towing vessel for, uh, for the government. Leaving them, I worked in coastal towing in the Hawaiian Islands and then on the east coast of the United States. Uh, most recently, I have been sailing deep sea, primarily on container ships uh, for the last 14 or 15 years. Uh, on my vacations from sailing, I work as a maritime instructor and a simulator operator. That's that's a very rich uh, career. I mean, I mean, I think if if we had a lot of time, we could speak about a lot of things. But maybe this 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 uh, uh, this podcast will limit it to container ships. But otherwise, I think there is just so much to speak to you about. I'm just curious, uh, and I think the whole world is curious uh, regarding container ships of late. And I've not my my experience primarily has been on uh, oil tankers. Having seen the changes in the container industry. How would you sort of assess the changes that has happened uh, uh, over the last uh, 10 or 15 years, I would think? And that's when we had this large explosion uh, in sizes. So the last 10 or 15 years, uh, you know, what has been the changes in, in the uh, in the container ship industry? Well, my, my first container ship uh, was in the early 2000s, and it was uh, 290 meters long and 4,600 TEUs. And at that time, the largest container ships in the world were almost double that size at 9,000 TEUs. Fast forward to the present day, uh, I'm on a 299-meter container ship with 6,200 TEUs, and the largest container ships in the world are 22,000 TEU plus and 400 meter, almost 400 meters long. Um, it's a tremendous growth in a short period of time. Some of the ships I've been on uh, range from small feeder vessels of 155 meters up to the liner vessel that I'm currently on at 299 meters. The changes, though, in scale, like I said, are, are tremendous. Um, I've been, been into uh, Rotterdam and... I was on a 292-meter vessel passing some of these ULCVs. It was like I was on a small boat compared to a ship. You were literally looking up from the bridge wing of what I consider to be a fairly large container vessel, looking up, well up, to the bridge of the ULCVs we were passing, these ultra-large container vessels. 
So the change has been uh, tremendous. Uh, with this change, I mean, just uh, uh, just to get an idea of what must be the speeds that these vessels do, uh, what do they do these days? Well, the speeds of the vessels are going to uh, vary uh, tremendously. Uh, through the early 2000s, maybe even into the mid-2000s, you were looking at service speeds of 24 to 25 knots on uh, the container vessels, and some of them were really built for speed. They were had a very sleek uh, hull and uh, were designed primarily for speed. Nowadays, we're, with the larger vessels, they can still go fast, but they're also considering uh, ultra-slow steaming. Due to fuel costs, a lot of the uh, larger container companies have implemented uh, ultra-slow steaming when um, required for fuel efficiency. And that ultra-slow steaming is normally something like 10% of their engine load, which on my particular vessel would give us somewhere between 11 and 12 knots. If we start going uh, under that, we risk uh, damage to the engine. Okay. Uh so the maximum speeds this could do are in the range of 24 to 25. If they're not uh, slow steaming, then this could go up to uh, 20, 25 knots. Uh, is that, that is uh, correct. And I mean, with this increase in the size of these vessels, uh, has there been any appreciable change in the crewing of these vessels? Are they still manned similarly, or is there a change uh, in the number of crew? The crews are still the, about the same size. Um, the crew 15 years ago on a container ship was about 20 people, and it's still about 20 people today, depend, regardless of whether you're talking about a feeder vessel or uh, one of these ULCVs at 400 meters long. Um, some of the largest vessels may go up to, say, 24 to 25 crew members. But when you look at that in relation to the extreme size of these vessels, um, it pales in comparison. Uh, just uh, just going out and checking lashings on a 20,000 or 22,000 TEU vessel must be a tremendous task for a crew of 20 people or even 24 people. And we've seen a lot of losses, uh, particularly in the trans-Pacific trade, of containers going over the side. Now, you can argue that you know they were this is due to weather or other factors. But I would say there's a big question as to whether or not the crew is capable of simply checking and maintaining the lashings on the deck cargo. And then when you start getting into the maintenance of the vessel, as the ships get bigger, the machinery gets bigger, and it's possible that the engineering demands may be greater than the crew size will allow you know, just the general maintenance. And then you start talking about the coating maintenance. You know, the hull and the ship side and the decks are one thing, but when you start looking at the uh, container securing equipment on deck, the permanent, uh, permanently mounted container securing equipment, is the crew adequate to maintain those? Or are you going to have to uh, do a different type of maintenance schedule? So it's uh, reasonable to assume that uh, the crew are, um, crew are having to deal with a lot more than they would have to, than they had to maybe a few years earlier before these 20,000s came in? Yes, uh, they, they are certainly dealing with a lot more. I mean, simply the square footage, the tonnage, the size of the machinery is uh, much greater. And 
it's almost like a, a medical situation where you have to uh, triage and take care of the most critical items first. I'd say one of the one of the plus sides for mm. these ULCVs right now is that they are they are all relatively new. So they're not dealing with the maintenance uh, 10, 15 years down the road that uh, we're seeing on some of the other vessels. All right. So 10 to 15 years down the line, maybe we are seeing a lot more the crew will have to do on the ships, uh, coating maintenance, the engineering demands, the lashings. So, uh, yeah, 10 to 15 years time, maybe there is a different story that we'll be talking about. The other thing I wanted to speak uh, understand is regarding the size, I mean, comparing the size of the vessels and the capability of the terminals and not just the capability, the design, the approaches, the turning basins, I mean, the, the, the wharves, the cranes, uh, have they sort of been, uh, you know, uh, built up to meet this new demand? Well, certainly over the last uh, 10 to 15 years, uh, the terminals and the ports uh, have to have had to go, undergo uh, rapid development to bring these larger and larger ships in. Take into, or we can we can look at uh, Bayonne, New Jersey, as a perfect example. There was a bridge there that was restricting the larger vessels from coming into the container terminals in Port Elizabeth and Port Newark, and it was over a billion dollar project to raise this bridge so that these larger vessels could come in. And then we start talking about dredging. Mm. We start talking about the size of the cranes. You need bigger cranes to reach over these large stacks of containers and reach to the outboard side of these wider vessels. So there is a lot of infrastructure improvement that goes into bringing these ships in and out of port. And as a simulator operator, I have uh, taken part in some of the trials of larger vessels coming in and out of particular ports to see what type of dredging might need to be done. And it's quite extensive. Along with the uh, larger vessels coming in and out of port, the the tolerances for error are getting tighter and tighter. Uh, Years ago, we might not see docking masters uh, working for the tug companies carrying portable pilot units or PPUs in, in the United States. But with the advent of these larger and larger vessels and the physical constraints on the ports, when they're churning the vessels in a churning basin or if they're coming alongside a dock and there's a minimal clearance for and aft, they need the additional precision of these electronic aids to make sure that things go safely. Hmm. Uh, one other thing, when I see these pictures of these large container ships, I see that their accommodation uh, is uh, not aft as it uh, on on uh, you know traditional ships were. So, uh, so with the accommodation forward, which I, I think uh, I mean also would mean the bridge or the command center is also forward, uh, or at least you know a lot more forward than it used to be on a sort of traditional uh, position, a traditional t- traditional design. Of uh, of such a ship, so uh, and also you said you've been a simulator uh, operator. So, how do you see this change uh, affecting the orientation of someone who is on the bridge of a vessel with with the uh, bridge forward, uh, vis-a-vis someone uh, you know who is who's been handling the vessel uh, with a bridge aft? Is there 
a change in orientation that they need to adapt to? Is that something that's easy to do? Does it require training? Or can you just pluck someone out of a ship? Uh, he's been on, uh, you know, uh, someone who's been on a ships with uh, a traditional aft bridge and put them on a ship uh, with a bridge forward. And uh, would it be easy for him to uh, cope up? I think that in a perfect world, you would certainly have additional training, uh, whether it be time on an actual vessel or time in a simulator. But I think what happens more often than not, than not is that you have the license that allows you to be on this particular ship. So you get sent to a particular mm -hmm. ship uh, without any additional orientation, you know, depending on where the, the uh, location of the bridge is. And it certainly does make a difference. Um, I've moved from feeder vessels to liner vessels. And on the feeder vessels, we had an after house. So the house was right on the stern of the ship. And you had a good view of the whole deck. You had, could uh, visualize pretty well where the pivot point was of the ship. And it was pretty straightforward. I moved from feeder vessels to liner vessels. And this is, you know, moderate size container vessels of, you know, 46 to 6,200 TEUs. The house is further forward. It's uh, certainly not at a midships. It's still after the midships. But now you have four or five bays of cargo behind the bridge. And simply having to remind myself that instead of having no ship behind the bridge or virtually no ship behind the bridge, I've got a lot of ship behind the bridge. It's hard to imagine now taking that same bridge and putting it forward of midships. Because now you have to remember that not only do I have per perhaps 200, 250 meters of vessel behind me, now I have to realize that instead of looking forward and seeing where the pivot point is, now I might be actually be standing at the pivot point. So how you maneuver the vessel is definitely going to be different. And as, as I said, in, a, in an ideal world, you would have some sort of orientation or training prior to going to one of these vessels, but I'm not sure if that's happening. Okay, so it's just not the size of the vessels uh, which the crew are dealing with, but they're also dealing with a change in design, which they may not have sufficient time to orient themselves before they go on board. I mean, yes, like you said, in an ideal world, yes, but it's quite likely that uh, they may not have had the time to familiarize themselves uh, with the new arrangement. Before, yeah, uh, now when we've sp spoken about the size of the container ships, we've spoken about the terminals and the boats. Uh, now I'm also wondering about the canals and the waterways. So canals and the waterways, I mean, they've been built uh, years ago, uh, a lot before people ever thought about 400 meter uh, or 55, 58 meter wide uh, container ships. Uh, so uh, are the canals uh, among those that you've transited in, uh, are they sort of equipped uh, to handle these vessels? Or are these margins that you spoke of earlier, are these clearances, you know, they are a lot lesser now? Well, the tolerances are definitely getting tighter. And um, not necessarily speaking about the uh, canals, but certainly speaking about channels going in and out of ports, they are looking at, you know, dredging deeper to accommodate the, the deeper draft. Some of them are looking at, at dredging wider but there, there are constraints there. There's cost constraints, there are physical constraints. Um, in terms of going in and out of some ports, they are looking at 
the uh, windage of these vessels. Uh, if you have a wind blowing on the beam with this uh, massive sail area beside of the vessel and all of the staff containers, you're going to be affected by that. You are going to have to compensate for the leeway that that wind creates. So as you steer up into the wind to compensate for that, it's not just the beam of the vessel that's going down the waterway. Now you have a swept path. The swept path mm. increases to a point that may not you may not be able to fit in the waterway. Um, not speaking about canals again, but speaking about some ports, the pilots associations have done studies to see at what wind strength on the beam they would be able to accommodate the swept path of the vessel. So some ports might say, okay, for this size vessel, you can come in with no more than 20 knots of wind or 25 knots of wind or 15 knots of wind on the beam because your swept path won't fit inside the channel. Now, in terms of uh, canals, um, I'm, I know that they are looking at the drafts of vessels. I know that they have sometimes a maximum length of the vessel, but I'm not quite sure if they're looking at the environmental factors such as wind as a, as a criteria for going through them. It's quite reasonable to assume that wind, like you said, is, it gives the effect of a sail. Uh, so once you have a larger stack or higher stack of containers along your ship side, the the wind gets a larger area for it to act on, which means the resultant or the effect of the wind would be much larger on a ship with a lot more containers on deck as compared to a ship with fewer containers on deck. Absolutely. I mean, if, if you're talking about a 400-meter vessel, there's a great difference between a 400-meter ULCV or ultra-large container vessel and a 400-meter VLCC or a very large crude carrier. Because the crude carrier is going to be sitting lower lower in the water. Mm. It's going to be affected greatly by the current, but it doesn't have a lot above the water, so it's really not going to be affected as much by the wind. Contrast that with the ULCV. It's got a lot underwater. It's got a significant draft, and it has a lot above the water. So it's going to be affected by both the current or hydrodynamic effects as well as the sail area. Okay, so I think for people who've not been on ships, uh, it would be quite difficult to appreciate uh, a v VLCC being a very large crude carrier having a lot of hull underwater as compared to a ULCV, ultra-large container vessel, having a significant, a significant amount of hull below water, but then maybe a significantly higher uh, proportion above water. And so that would be... Uh, so when you have a significant portion of hull underwater, you're affected by the water, which means the current mostly. And if you have uh, area above the hull, so which is exposed to the wind, so the wind is acting on that. So for an ultra-large container vessel, the master who's commanding, who's conning the vessel, is uh, is having to contend with uh, the current under under uh, 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 around the hull uh, below water and wind uh, across her uh, containers on deck. Uh, that's reasonable to oh, assume that, absolutely. right? Absolutely. Um, yeah, we talked. To, you mentioned current, but uh, going through a confined waterway, a channel into a port or a canal, you're going to be dealing with uh, bank effects as well. You know, as this large vessel 
is moving through the water. It's pushing a mass of water in front of it, which is creating a high pressure area. And if you start moving towards one side of the channel or one side of the canal, that high pressure area is going to impact the bank and possibly cause the vessel to shear away from that bank. Then you start taking into account the Bernoulli principle. So as you start trying to compress this water between the side of the ship or the bottom of the ship and the bottom, then you start um, dealing with the Bernoulli principle, and the water speeds up. As the water speeds up, it creates lower pressure. So at the same time, you have the bank cushion at the bow pushing the bow away you have a stern suction with this lower pressure pulling the stern towards the side of the channel. And you combine these bank effects with windage and you've got some really powerful variables in ship handling. Hmm. So th th there are a lot of unknowns and there are a lot of tricks the water has up its sleeve, water and the canal and the banks, which really uh, could make life difficult for a ship's master or anyone who is conning the uh, vessel. You spoke of Bernoulli, you spoke of bank effect, or suction, the bow moving away, the stern moving in, and you're not sure what's causing it. Is it the wind? Is it the water below my keel? Is it the is it the wheel that I'm putting across uh, to port to starboard? What's actually causing my vessel to move? So it's quite uh, possible for someone on this bridge to be standing and uh, not able to figure out what's happening. Uh, that's uh, not a very well, difficult scenario, uh... right? It's a very complex scenario. Um, not only are we dealing with all these physical effects, we're also dealing with the uh, humans on the bridge. Now, that's why the humans on the bridge have to work together through bridge resource management to ensure that they can handle the vessel effectively. You know, looking at something like windage, you're going to have an idea when windage is, is going to be a concern. You're going to be looking for the cues and clues to tell you that the wind is picking up. You're going to start with the planning before a transit in or out of a port or through a canal. You know, what is the weather supposed to be like? Are we expecting high winds? Are the winds going to be moderate? Uh, are we expecting large currents? Which way is the current going to be going? Which way is the wind going to be blowing? So you start with planning ahead. And then as you get into the situation, you need to maintain your situational awareness and see what the wind and the current is actually doing. In terms of uh, current, we have an idea that, you know, from looking at uh, structures, you know, whether it be floating structures, buoys or day marks or something like that, we can get an idea looking at those of what the current is actually doing. We can use our electronic cues and clues to determine what the current is doing as well. Because we have our speed over ground through our GPS or GNSS receivers, but we also have our speed through the water through something like our Doppler speed lock. And that'll tell us how fast we are moving through the water versus moving over ground. So you can tell if the current's behind you, if it's ahead of you, and how strong it is. Along the same lines, we have the effects of the wind. And we have cues and clues to tell us what the wind is doing as well. Electronically, we have an anemometer. And that anemometer has a repeater on the ectus. So if we are watching our ectus or you know, 
re reviewing our ectus to see where we are in the channel, we can also see what the wind is doing. And is it increasing? Is it decreasing? Is it changing direction? And then looking out the window, you can also pick up cues and clues. Are the flags that are flying, whether it's on the ship or some, something shoreside, are they starting to show an, an increase in wind or a decrease in wind or a change in wind direction? And then you can look at the physical characteristics around you. Are, is, is there dust being blown up on the side of a canal per se? Or hmm. it, can you see the wind gusts on the, on the surface of the water? So there's a lot that goes into this, but there are things that we can refer to, whether it be electronic or you know, by eye looking out the window to tell us what's going on. Okay. So what I gather is you brought in the element of the human being and uh, being part of the bridge team. So uh, with a bridge team functioning effectively, there are cues and clues that they can clue into to sort of uh, tell them, uh, you know, uh, how the ship is behaving and how it will behave uh, in the near future. And uh, sticking on with bridge team, uh, you know, when you go into ports and when you go into uh, canals, uh, you normally have pilots on board and these pilots form a part of the bridge team. They sort of uh, become one team and then navigate the ship across the canal or into the port. Uh, so they have the local knowledge uh, that's necessary to navigate, uh, you know, uh, the canal or the port. So these pilots come on board and uh, they uh, sort of integrate with the bridge team and they provide the local knowledge and they help the vessel uh, get across the canal or get into the port. So what I'm uh, sort of curious about is uh, uh, the transits in the Suez Canal. So if I may ask you, uh, how many times may you have transited the Suez Canal? And uh, when would I have been the last time? I've been through the Suez Canal a... Uh probably be better than 25 times. And the, the last time was about three months ago. So could you speak, I mean, could you throw some light on, or could you explain to us, uh, you know, what happens you know, if you assume a transit, uh, uh, you know, westbound transit. So you come up uh, and you, you know, uh, when you, before you approach the canal uh, and you want to go east, uh, want to go west, what actually happens? Uh, I mean, if you could just maybe drop a, a simple timeline on, you know, maybe your arrival and then what happens after that till the time you get across uh, on the uh, northern side of the canal or the both side uh, side. Sure. Uh, your canal transit actually starts uh, several days beforehand when you start making all of your declarations to your agent and who then makes their, their declarations to the Suez Canal Authority and arranges your transit. Um, on container vessels, you are usually trying to operate most efficiently for your voyage. So your drop dead time for arriving at Port Suez, which is on the south end of the canal, is going to be 2300 on the evening before you transit the canal. And if you arrive after 2300, for the first hour after that, there is a 5% penalty on your transit fees. And then another hour past that, you have a 10% penalty on your transit fees. So between 2230 and 2300, you tend to have uh, quite a traffic jam at the uh, reporting line south of uh, Port Suez because everybody is trying to use the minimum amount of fuel to get there and get there just in time. After you 
check in at the reporting line, you'll be assigned an anchor spot and you'll go to anchor, probably getting to anchor somewhere between 2330 and midnight. And once you're anchored, you'll receive a visit from the uh, Suez Canal inspector as well as quarantine. They will check your paperwork, do any uh, inspections that they need, and you will also receive your line boat and line men uh, at some point uh, during the during the night. So you get to anchor somewhere around midnight, and by about somewhere between four thirty and six o'clock in the morning, you'll receive your channel pilot. Your channel pilot will come on board. You'll finish heaving up the anchor and head inbound for Port Suez. Uh, right at Port Suez, you're going to change pilots. You'll, your channel pilot will get off. Your first canal pilot will get on. And this canal pilot will be with you through uh, the Great Bitter Lake and up to uh, Ismalia, which is about halfway through the canal, where you will switch pilots again. So going through the canal, you'll actually have three pilots on board at different times. One of the interesting things or unique and potentially stressful parts of having pilots on board uh, is actually at Port Said, because your last pilot disembarks at Port Said, which is still well inside uh, a buoy channel and uh, a narrow channel. So you have 12 to 15 miles of buoyed and narrow channel to, to uh, traverse without a pilot on board. And as this is leaving the canal and going out into more open waters, still a narrow channel, but you have cross currents, you've got the potential for high winds and large numbers of fishing vessels, it's somewhat stressful. And just to throw in one additional stressor, stressor there on the north end of the uh, canal, you have the potential for your GPS or GNS signal being lost or compromised, which is a not unco uncommon occurrence in the Eastern Mediterranean. Right. Thank you. That, that's quite a eventful transit, and this must take how long? Well, you if you uh, you'll get your uh, channel pilot somewhere between four thirty and six o'clock in the morning. And generally, you are going to be clear of that last uh, narrow and buoy channel in Port Said somewhere around 1700, 1730. So it's a fairly long day. And keep in mind that this is a fairly long day after a fairly late night. Yeah, you've been arriving at 2300 and then preparing for the transit. So, yeah, it's quite uh... Uh, difficult to imagine how much, uh, I mean, quite easy to imagine uh, how much of uh, sleep you must have had. Uh, one other thing, Cam uh, Richard, I wanted to bring up because it's of uh, immediate relevance and this has been around in the media is about uh, the, uh, you know, uh, when pilots come on board, they often expect, uh, you know, uh, cigarettes, so to say. So is that something uh, you've experienced uh, while uh, during the transit? Is that... Uh, Something you've seen yourself? Well, through about 2015, uh, gratuities for pilots and port officials were not uncommon around the world. In fact, I remember in a port, not the Suez Canal, but a far distant port, um, getting an email from the agent detailing who the pilots, the port officials, so on and so forth, 
who got how many cartons of cigarettes. So it wasn't just the Suez Canal, although the Suez Canal is somewhat notorious for uh, the gratuity. Since since 2015, a number of the large uh, shipping companies have banded together and created a anti-corruption campaign. And with this anti-corruption campaign, gratuities to pilots and port officials are prohibited. And that's anywhere in the world. And really, there's no uh, there's no leeway on it. So you, you have uh, been through the canal and you've not offered or you were not asked for any gratuity? Well, uh, I have been through the canal and there are still pilots and port officials who will ask for, for gratuities. But um, working for one of those larger companies and being part of the anti-corruption network, it's pretty well known that we do not give any. Because we all also spoke of the bridge team earlier and the importance of the bridge team to be always clued in. Uh, not giving uh, gratuities, uh, does that affect the performance of the bridge team? Does that affect the way the pilot integrates into the bridge team? I've got to say, I have not had any issues with pilots not receiving gratuities. Um, I mean, pilots in the Suez Canal are like pilots and mariners everywhere, though. You can get good ones and not so good ones. And the challenge is to identify which one you have on board, build a rapport with them, and then uh, successfully work as that bridge team. All in all, I have not seen any issues with the pilots integrating themselves into the uh, bridge team for, you know, after not receiving gratuities. But uh, there is always a possibility of something like that happening. That's really nice to know. That's it's absolutely uh, uh, nice to know that you've not had trouble uh, in the canal because of not offering gratuities. That that having been said, I do recall oh, yeah. uh, in the mid-1990s when transiting the canal, um, we were carrying two rescue boats that could work as uh, line boats if we had to tie up alongside the canal. So as, as a result, we were we were not required to take a Suez Canal line boat or uh, or any linemen. And on that first transit, though, no gratuities were given to anyone. But then on our next transit, coming northbound, uh, we were required to take line boats and linemen. And now being a junior officer officer at the time, I can't say for sure that not providing gratuities caused that change, but that's what's always stuck in my mind. Of, of late, uh, Captain Richard, you would have uh, you know, seen all over the media the sort of press we got for what happened uh, uh, in the canal. Uh, when I'm saying we, I'm speaking about the industry. So I was wondering uh, if you had a point of view on the general reaction uh, the industry, I mean, the press, the media has uh, to accidents. Unfortunately, the focus in the media uh, is always about the things that have not gone well, the groundings, the collisions, the fatalities and uh, injuries on board vessels. Uh, the fact of the matter is there are many, many more times when things do go well. Uh, today, it's likely that 50-plus vessels transited the Suez Canal without incident. And hmm. what can we learn from them? From them, What did they do right that could be learned or should be learned by others? You know, are there any best practices that they have in place? And we, 
personally, I spend a lot of time reviewing accident reports as I'd much rather learn from somebody else's mistakes rather than making myself. However, you know, can we identify some of these best practices from things that go right rather than focusing on the things that go wrong? Unfortunately, it is the times when things do not go well. Like I said, the groundings, the collisions that the media focuses on. So I think it's unfortunate that we always get uh, press. I mean, we never get good press. We always get bad press. Uh, there's never, uh, no one, I think, in the industry ever gets uh, applauded for doing their job and also for filling all those uh, shelves in all the su- supermarkets across the world uh, during holiday Absolutely. season and otherwise. Uh, somehow, when that doesn't happen is, uh, you know, when we are, uh, uh, there is focus on our industry. Uh as we conclude, Kamrich, uh, I mean, uh, it's been a very good conversation. I just want, I was wondering, uh, what do you think is the future of um, uh, container ships? Because uh, why I'm asking is because there's been this tremendous increase uh, in size over such a short period of time. So, uh, do you are we seeing a thirty thousand TEU soon? I I do not think that we are going to see a thirty thousand TEU vessel. I I could very be very wrong, but I don't think that we are. If we start getting much bigger than we are now, much bigger than this 22,000 to 24,000 TEU, we are going to restrict even more the ports that these ships can go into. I mean, they're already restricted to a, a certain number of ports, but we're going to restrict even more the ports that they can go into and then also the routes that they can take. Um, I believe, as I mentioned, I may have mentioned the limit for ships going through the Suez Canal are, is currently capped at about 400 meters long. Uh, the draft is, you know, you might have a little bit more leeway on draft with a larger container vessel. But lengthwise, we're pretty much maxed out with the Suez Canal. And if you take the Suez Canal out of the uh, picture, now all of these ships have to take very different routes. And um, it's a lot to take into consideration. Beyond the actual routes, that, yeah, that's a lot of more distance. But beyond the routes that they can take, let's talk about the infrastructure required to load and unload these vessels. I mean, they are very efficient for getting a large number of containers from point A to point B. But now the infrastructure to load and unload them has to be increased as well. And then, and this is where I think the uh, PNI clubs will have a say is what happens when you have a casualty on these vessels? What happens when you have a fire or a collision or, God forbid, they sink? Um, the amount of cargo you have in one basket, the, you know, the number of eggs you have in one basket is quite large. Mm. And I think that you know, if you had a significant casualty with the ships that we have now, the ULCVs that we have now, you would be looking at billion-dollar losses. I can't imagine them having, you know, looking at a 30,000 TEU vessel and saying, this is a good risk to insure. So I, I think that, you know, we have physical constraints and we're also going to have monetary and, you know, financial constraints. Uh, as we wrap up, Cap uh, Richard, uh, would you have any uh, closing comments? Thank you again for having me on Even Keel. I know that in addition to uh, 
the Even Keel podcast, you're creating some physically distant, socially connected networking and information sharing opportunities within the maritime safety world. You know, having open-minded discussions like you're promoting in a safe place with a wide variety of wide variety of people from around the world is really critical. You know, the tolerances on safety and error are getting so tight that we need to look at what we can do as an industry to make things a little safer. Make things a little safer for the mariners on board, make things a little safer for shipping companies, and make things a little safer for society as a whole. Uh, thank you again for uh, having me. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Kevin Bridge. It was a pleasure having you.